everybody, welcome to the Brain Food Show. My name is Simon, and joined with me today, as always, Davin. How's it going? It's going. It's going. It's going. What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the first film ever filmed, the first, the first motion picture, and uh, a quick fact about Eastman Kodak, which is uh, sort of, I don't know, depressing in some ways, but also kind of, I don't know, kind of. If I would have done it the full thing and made Eastman Kodak the subject here. It would have given more of his personality and stuff uh, to make the whole thing make more sense. But we're just going to go with the snippet quick fact, which is the interesting way he died, basically. Have we have we done something about this on the YouTube channel at some point? I feel like I there was something about his will. I don't know. Uh, or maybe, I mean, it could be one entry I did on like a top tens video, which is another YouTube channel I do. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it's a lot of videos. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Um, go on and tell me this. Tell me this quick fact. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, March 14th, 1932, uh, Eastman Kodak, he invites all his friends over, well, not all his friends, but his, his close friends over to witness the signing of his will, which he's rewriting to, to kind of redo it. And he wants all the witnesses to come because he's going to basically give them all his money away. Um, for the most part, um, he gave some mm-hmm. like 200,000 to a niece of his named Ellen, which is about $3.4 million today. But most of it went to various entities around the city of Rochester, which is where he lived his whole life. Um, so like, you know, like he had $2 million to, um, the university of Rochester, which is about $34 million today. And he actually, funny enough for, for Kodak, uh, he gave uh, quite a lot of money to, to the city to basically provide free dental care for kids just so kids could have nice smiles. Um, which is kind of, I feel that's very American. Yeah. Well, I'm very fitting for Kodak, you know, like, you know, oh, the guy who right. Made, yeah. Okay. I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the guy who made that like instant cam everyone could carry around a thing, which also is around the transition when people started smiling and stuff. And which, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't exposure times at that point. People still didn't smile, even when exposure times were very quick. Uh, they still didn't. This sort of came later when they had that action cam, basically the camera you could hold and just anyone could just point and shoot. You didn't have to have expertise. And then people started doing day to day life stuff. And they would just capture smiles and people decided they liked that. Whereas before, when it was like when you would just get one picture your whole life, basically, uh, you know, you'd, you'd pay a lot of money, you'd go sit there. And even when the exposure was really quick, so it was just like snap, picture taken, it was still it was like a formal thing. Everyone would dress up and you wouldn't smile like a like a drunkard or something. You know, at the time was the, the perception. <laughs> it's like that's that's the photo that will you're you're literally yeah. the only record of your entire life at that point in history or you'd be smiling like, uh <laughs> Yeah. So you didn't, people didn't smile. And then, but then once people had the camera in their hand and anyone could take a picture anywhere, then it was more like day-to-day stuff. And then just smiles started getting captured. And then people just, it wasn't like a formal thing anymore. Sorry, just a okay. quick question yeah. for you, uh, your area uh-huh. of expertise, being an American. Is it true you smile in your passport photos there and you have to? Um, no. Because I think I was going through no. an airport once and they were there was, you know, the passport photo examples of... Or I don't know, wherever I saw it. And everyone's like smiling in their passport photos. In the UK, it's you have to have a neutral expression. You can't be wearing glasses. You can't be smiling. You can't be like doing your drunk face. Yeah, I think I don't know if it was always like that. But when I got my passport a couple of years ago and we did the, um, the Amsterdam trip, they I think they said not to smile. Oh, so, OK. That's less yeah. fun, isn't it? Maybe it's changed. I don't Kodak know. Yeah, they should. yeah, so Kodak, going back to Kodak, he redoes his will, giving a lot of his money away to random entities around the city. Uh, and then he very cheerfully, he's apparently in a quite good mood. He signs as well. And then he asks all his friends if they could just step out for a second while well, he just, you know, for whatever reason. So they uh-huh. all step out. And then George East, uh, Eastman 
Kodak, he takes out his little a pen and paper. He writes a little note. Do you want to read the note? It says, to my friends, my work is done. Why wait? GE. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's just going to kill himself. Yeah, he takes out a pistol and he's 74 years old at this point and he shoots himself in the heart, interestingly enough, which is not, I would think, how the best way if you want like painless and stuff. Because like, you're going to live for a little bit after that, right? Yeah. As your brain yeah, is totally. slowly, slowly starved of oxygen. Yeah. Well, and if you really? miss, you're going to live for like maybe, a, you know, a, a little while. So yeah, so this, of course, brings up why... Wait, when, when was this? Uh, he, he was 74 years old. Um, I didn't... I don't think I actually wrote... Oh, yes, it was March 14th, 1932. Yeah, so he might not be slowly dying of infection, but <laughs> a few decades earlier. Yeah, so the, his, his point of this is, for starters, his mother was uh, until her death in 1907 for the last few years... Or she lived with him until her death in 1907, and for the last several years of her life, she was confined to a wheelchair. She slowly died you know she got ill and it, it wasn't a good time for her basically he had to watch her suffer quite a bit and then his sister he watched go through the same thing but in her case it was polio and she was also confined to a wheelchair also you know slowly dying and so then he writes to a friend god keep me from being like them doesn't it seem strange that the clearest minds i've ever known should be taken this way that is the sad thing about illness it is it this is depressing it is it's very depressing. Yeah. And Eastman, he was 74 at the time, but um, about, I think it was about a decade and a half before, uh, it was in the 1920s anyway, uh, so about a decade or so, he was diagnosed with a spinal condition and saw himself be confined to a wheelchair. And he basically, he wasn't happy with this and he didn't want to go slowly over time, you know, by illness or whatever fate. So he just decided in March of 1932 to take his own life and just uh, end it on his own terms. Basically, he had I guess, mm. done what he wanted to do in life and accomplished all he did and so didn't want to, as he said, why wait? I feel, I feel with this that if I was in that position, I would just be thinking, no, next year is the year they're going to come up with the thing that will fix my spinal injury or yeah. download my brain into a computer so I can live forever. And so I'd never want to do it. Yeah. And then I definitely thought that maybe 10 years ago. Now, as I've got older... And I've seen like one of mm -hmm. my grandparents just lose their minds to dementia. I'm like, oh no, mm -hmm. um, I get that. Like, I, I, I'd yeah. be, I understand Eastman here for sure. It's, it's, yeah. Grim. Well, and, and if you go into the whole of his personality and his life and stuff, he was definitely a guy who was, you know, self made man and very much in control. And, you know, he, he, he valued that he was very well respected. He didn't want to see him become like an invalid that people had to, you know, wait on and, things like this and uh, kind of a, I don't know, just interesting end to uh, quite a titan of industry. Yeah. Still though, I think I'll shoot myself in the head rather than the heart. So yeah. The heart absolutely is morbid not, about it. Yeah. It's not, but I don't know. He, he maybe wanted to preserve his, you know, cause you shoot yourself in the head. That's just messy. And uh, I'm, you know, maybe even more traumatic for your friends that are all waiting out there and they come in and they hear the gunshot, they come in and your head's blown off. This a, so, have you read any John Grisham novels? I imagine you haven't because you seem to be, you know. <laughs> I imagine you reading like The Count of Monte Cristo rather than the latest pulp novel yeah. from Grisham. But I love John Grisham. Count of Monte Cristo a novel based on this. is my favorite book. Actually, that's <laughs> funny that you say that. Amazing. Did you, did you guess that because I got you that leather copy of it? That no, I assumed this was just, uh, I know you were talking. I didn't know this was your favorite book. I know you sent me because you were telling me about the yeah. classics and how this witch company rebinds yeah. them in these beautiful leather things. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember who that oh, one was, but yeah, it, it was beautiful. It, it only yeah. came to mind because it's the only classic that I own now. <laughs> and have you read it? <laughs> uh, I have read like the first hundred pages. It's very difficult, man. I'm not that smart. Is it's, it? <laughs> the language no, it, is so confusing. <laughs> I think the language is amazing. Like, I love how they write back then, especially, especially like this one. I know like you, this one, of course, you, they're translating from French. So you got to find a good translation and stuff. But this, this, this one was good. It is, it is tricky. I, I am reading it. It is nice. I do feel... <laughs> better for it because i don't know i've never really been, I've been a big <laughs> classics reader if you didn't know uh sorry just before uh, the, the christian book in the christian book there's this guy and he basically has himself declared sane by like psychiatrists and all of this stuff writes out his will and mm-hmm. then kills himself and then mm-hmm. all of his children who were uh, set to inherit it or something it was like 20 years ago i read this book uh and they're fighting over whether he was insane or not not important what is important mm-hmm. is today's sponsor skillshare and skillshare has 30,000 classes that you can level up your skills with. Design, business, video, social media, whatever skills. And I feel I should probably use some Skillshare for social media because my social media presence is woefully inadequate. (laughs) I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I reply to people on Twitter and I occasionally post my rambling thoughts but that's about it i should take some skillshare classes on social media they had uh i was i was actually using skillshare the other day uh looking up their spanish courses and they actually have this one by this guy who's he's really funny but it's like uh it, he basically is like you can learn like fifteen thousand or whatever it was uh spanish words in 10 minutes and like he totally delivers uh and it's what? just these these little oh, quirks. I know it's gonna yeah, it's gonna be the borrowed words, right? So it'll be like every word that ends in like Yeah, exactly. There's these groups. And if you do it is like many thousands of words, like if you know this in English, just change the ending to this and you have the Spanish word. And sure, you know, you the endings change and stuff, uh, as you're, you know, depending on, you know, what you're talking about exactly still, but uh, you basically get the gist of it where you can where you can read it, it totally. But they actually had um, some other Spanish courses that actually were more thorough. But that one, that one I actually liked. It was, it was funny as well. The guy was a good teacher. I feel like even Skillshare doesn't clickbait then. 15,000 Spanish words in 10 minutes, but it delivers. It's it did. Clickbait. I, I forgive clickbait if it delivers. Have you heard of Thomas Frank? He's a YouTuber. I, and no, he has a course no. on Skillshare. I'm waiting for Skillshare to mm-hmm. be like, Simon, we want you to do a course on skills. I don't know what skill it would be. We could totally do like something on YouTube or something. <laughs> That's true. We could do something on YouTube. I was thinking about doing my passion of John Grisham novel. Or online publishing, research, um, where they were all sorts of stuff. I did. I This Thomas Frank guy had one on. I could do one on productivity. Although Thomas Frank, he seems mm-hmm. to know more about it than me. So they've probably got that one covered. <laughs> uh, it's good. Uh, anyway, enough with Skillshare. You could support Brain Food Show. Uh, the Brain Food Show, I should say. I've got some notes here and I typed it out wrong. <laughs> You go to Skillshare.com forward slash brain food. You get two months of a free trial for free, obviously. Again, that's Skillshare.com forward slash brain food. And yeah, smooth transition into today's main topic. What are we talking about? We're talking about the, the first film ever made and, uh, and the whole story behind it, which is really interesting because it's not just about the first film. We're going to go into the guy, a guy by the name of Edward Moybridge and sort of a little... Uh, a little drama of his own that involved a gun um, in the process. Uh, it's good. It's good. So let's jump into it. First films. A, a little drama. I'm fairly sure he kills someone, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. And unabashedly kills them. Is like, yeah, I did it. That's right. And gets away with it. So we'll get into that shortly. So the first films were just, they were like, if you think for 
people just think like animated gifs. That's what they were, just these little short clips. So we have like, you know, some of the first ones were that, of course, people have probably seen the train arriving at the station, which was like, you know, wowed audiences at the time, or like a boxer throwing a punch, which is another big one. Amazing. Yeah, but it turns out before all of these, before all of these, there was Edward Moybridge. And in 1878, the first film ever was The Horse in Motion. And so while this... This, uh, oh, and he, I mean, he did like hundreds of things beyond this, but this one that were actually more meant to entertain and also educate. Um, and this one was definitely in the educational genre to where basically they wanted to answer a question. So it did, the horse in motion was people found wildly entertaining at the time because there's, you know, I don't know, I guess. 15 minutes standing ovation at Sundance. Yeah, it basically because... I mean, you can see if you see something like amazing technologically or like some cool special effect it is entertaining. And this would have been like, whoa, you know, I came up with a fairly good analogy for this. Have you tried virtual reality? No, I haven't yet. OK, two or three years ago, I went to a, a big electronics store here and I tried out mm-hmm. like a virtual reality headset full on game with those hand things and this mm-hmm. headset on. And I was just absolutely blown away like i'm not exactly the biggest spending person i'm a bit cheap and i was like i want it package it up i'm taking mm-hmm. it out and i just bought it it's incredible it just i i and now i don't use it because it makes me travel sick but it it <laughs> just my mind was absolutely blown by this technology when i first used mm-hmm. it and reading this i feel this because now it's like okay yeah it's pretty impressive but putting it in and just you're in that world for the first time was mm-hmm. just Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, try, I mean, this was when it. people were just, you know, riding, hitching up their covered wagons to go do stuff. And so they're watching a film here. Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, the horse in motion, while we might think it's like weird, but literally for centuries, you have notes of artists and, uh, you know, horse enthusiasts, horse enthusiasts and stuff. And you can definitely see how this would be ap- applicable to training horses and, you know, for, for horse races and stuff. But, and scientists all wanted to know how exactly does a horse gallop like what what does their legs look like when they're in the air and artists of course because they want to depict it accurately and if you look before this painting nearly every single painting of a horse in mid gallop has it wrong they have their legs like out like this they look like hover horses right (laughs) yeah and 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 this of course film changed everything so this was they were looking to answer this question how does a horse gallop where what is its legs doing in mid gallop and so it seems silly but it but at the time it wasn't um, no, I mean, I, I've seen those old pictures of horses and all of the horses are just hovering about a foot above the grounds with the back legs yeah. and the front legs just sticking out as far forward as they can go. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And you think this is so weird to think about because for us, it's like, of course, we know what a horse looks like when they're in motion or like, like a person walking or running or something like, yeah, we've seen people running, but to really watch it in slow motion, to really see the movement like if an artist wanted to depict it, you got to kind of like really concentrate on the person running and a horse. Of course, their legs are going way too fast um, to be able to see it all. But like even like a human doing stuff to really see something and see it repeated in slow motion and everything, because if you tell the person to, you know, run in slow motion, they're going to change their movements and stuff. So this this, of course, you can see where this technology was leading and what Moybridge would do after the horse in motion. But for this, for this to actually capture the horse in motion, it just wasn't technologically possible with with photo- uh, photography of the day because the the exposure times at the time were like 15 to 60 seconds and so mm. i mean you can't you can't do it um so enter it's gonna be a really blurry horse yeah enter leland stanford so leland stanford you might uh you can recognize the stanford name and he is indeed 
lent his last name to the university. It was actually, though, named in homage to his son, who died in 1884 at the age of 16 of, of course, typhoid fever, because it was the 19th century. So yeah, so Stanford actually sunk about $40 million into Stanford University, which is about a, a little over a billion dollars today, which was about at his peak of his wealth was like uh, about two thirds, I believe it was, of his wealth at the time. So to the Leland Stanford Junior University, which is everyone just calls Stanford, but it's still actually officially Leland Stanford Junior, Junior University. It'd be a bit um, weird if you were like, yeah, I went to Stanford Junior. Um, it looks less impressive on a CV. It does, does it? It's like Junior University. Um, but yeah, the... So Stanford, how did he make his fortune in the first place? Uh, he basically started at first selling mining equipment for the California gold rush, which was the real people who got wealthy. Most of them uh, during the gold rush were those people. And then and then eventually he he actually became the governor of California. Uh, partially, he was quite prominent because he started getting involved with the Pacific Railroad. Um, and then, of course, as, as his position as governor, he then used it to enrich himself and his fellow railroad tycoons he was quite corrupt by modern standards but yeah robber baron style (laughs) yeah he was but he made a ton of money and his peak was about 1.5 billion dollars in today's money so he bought lots of fancy things mansions vineyards all that and also uh, the the subject of to bring it back to today is a racetrack in palo alto and he wanted he he basically wanted to figure out how horses run exactly to better their training so his horses could run better um, and win and whatnot. So then he he goes, he look, he's looking for the best photographer um, in, in California. He finds Edward Moybridge and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of money and uh, and you will you can figure out you can take this picture for me. And Moybridge is like, well, no, I can't. Um, that's not possible. Um, and Stanford is like, no, no, I'll give you all the money yeah. <laughs> and then you'll figure it out. Would more money solve this problem? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so then Moybridge ends up, of course, taking the deal. But we should actually probably I should backtrack. I'm skipping ahead a little. Should talk a little about who Moybridge was in the first place, because uh, he had kind of an interesting life up to that point. So he was actually born in England in 1830, and then he became a bookseller sometime around 1852, and um, found his way into California and uh, was moderately successful. And at the age of 30, he was a bookseller there, and he decided he was ready to go do something different. So he announces in the paper. In 1860, apparently this is what you do back then before Facebook. I have this day sold to my brother, Thomas S. Moybridge, my entire stock of books, engravings, etc. I shall leave for New York, London, Berlin, Paris, Rome, and Vienna, etc. It's like, thanks, dude. I really yeah. want thanks for the itinerary. Good to know. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the newspaper. Weird. All the vital news. Yeah. So he announces that he's going to go on this grand tour, but then he's he, he makes it as far as Texas, and that's it. Uh, and what happens in Texas is he gets thrown from the stagecoach and ends up smacking his head against a rock. And this causes severe brain oh. damage. And this this is uh, so he, he ends up waking up uh, apparently 150 miles later. So he was he was out for quite a while. Um, and he notes that each eye forms an individual impression so that looking at you, for instance, I could see another man sitting by your side. Also, you had like double vision or what? Yeah, exactly. So. Rather than go on his grand tour, he decided instead to return to England. Um, and then he ended up spending the next six years there kind of recovering and doing uh, basically at a certain point, he gets his physician suggests that he should he should get into the field of photography, you know, to help his vision, you know, the focusing and everything. Um, just sort of eye, eye exercise type thing. Um, so he ends up doing that. And then so fast forward to 1872 and Moybridge is now one of the leading photographers in the world. And he's back in California now. 
And he he got he was particularly famous. You can you can Google this. People can right now. Uh, the he shot over two hundred shots of Yosemite Valley in eighteen sixty eight, which is just like super clear shots. And this again seems like yeah, so what? But at the time, so he's having to cart all his equipment, which is like a lot of big equipment, all over the all over there. Um, so I can't remember how long he spent doing this. It was like four or five months or something. These photos are super impressive. Like even by today crystal clear and awesome and consider he's doing like these 15 to 60 second exposure times he's carting all his equipment to not only take the picture but also develop it right there because you have to develop it before the before the chemicals dry basically pretty Mm -hmm. quickly so he's got to go he's got to find the perfect spot he's got to wait for basically wind to die down everywhere in the valley um, and just wait you know sometimes days for the for the right conditions to be able to take the shot uh, and then move on to a new location. So he he got quite famous for these these shoots because they were quite impressive given the technology of the day. So then going back to to Stanford and Moybridge, Moybridge is one of the best photographers in the world. Stanford says, "Hey, will you do this? I'll give you all the money." Moybridge eventually uh, agrees to do it. And so th- they spend the next two years basically trying to come up with better ways, better um, chemicals and stuff to use that'll do faster exposure, better shutter designs, and things like this. And they did at this point have like some success. They had like a very blurry image at one point that kind of like you could almost kind of see the horse's legs and everything, but it still wasn't great. And so it's at this point, two years into the project, however, that in 1874, Moybridge gets arrested for, as we noted before, murder, and he happily confessed to it. So who did he murder and why? So two years earlier, yeah, two years earlier, he married a woman who was 20 years his junior. She was 21 years old named Flora Stone. And uh, she was actually already married when he met her, but he went ahead and paid for her divorce so he, mm-hmm. she could marry him. And so back to 1874 now. So on April 15th of that year, she bears him a son, Florido Helios Moybridge. And uh, so not long after, as you do, he goes to the midwife to pay for the, for the birthing. And the midwife's name was Susan Smith. Mm-hmm. And while there, there's a photograph that the midwife has. And it says on the back of it, little Harry in his wife's handwriting. Uh-oh. His name's, his not, name's not his Harry. His name's not Harry. And then the boy's name's not Harry. So who is Harry? So then he kind of goes off on the midwife and is like, who is who is Harry? Yeah. Um, also, and then tactical error of his wife. <laughs> or yeah, the midwife, what's she doing there? Like, yeah, yeah and the and the wife likes like writing, writing on, on the, the back. back of the it's not like they had an abundance yeah. of photos, I'm sure. Although he was this photographer guy, yeah. but still. Yeah, but yeah, so he probably took the picture and then she writes and I mean, I don't know, maybe she gave it to the midwife to then give to the other to Harry. I don't know what the story there is. But the after he goes ballistic, he, he eventually gets the midwife to confess that, in fact, his his wife had been having an affair with one major Harry Larkin. And uh, so the midwife would later recount what happened next. When I told Mybridge of the affair, he cried like a baby. He then asked her, whose baby is that? Mine or Larkin's? She replied, I don't know. <laughs> She then told him she had seen his wife on the bed with her clothes down to her waist and Larkins sat on the bedside. Oh, yes. A little room for doubt now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Moybridge, he didn't take it well. And then so she states, In great agony of mind, he wandered about. My opinion is when he left me, he was insane. Oh, wow. So he really lost it. He lost it. And then he leaves the midwife and then goes home. Collects his revolver. He then goes, uh, uh, gets a horse and carriage and goes mm-hmm. to Larkin's home. And after, and this was, this all, it took several hours to get there. Uh, and so he knocks on it's the just, door. It's, and not then on lot, it's not a quick journey. He's just in the back of the carriage, like really mad the whole way. <laughs> Come on. 
Yeah, so uh, February 4th, 1875, edition of the San Francisco Chronicle notes what happened when Larkin answered the door. Uh, Moybridge says, I am Moybridge, and this is a message from my wife. And then he pulls out the gun, shoots Larkin in the chest, and he, Larkin, dies. And so then Moybridge was, of course, arrested quite rapidly. Or actually, uh, and then, yeah, and then a few months later, he's on trial for murder. So... At no point in any of this does he deny killing Larkins. He's quite proud of the fact that he did. He also does not think he was insane. He, he thinks he was in the right in this, uh, doing this. So he thinks he was quite justified. So he's not shy about any of it. Doesn't sound like a brilliant defense, dude. So and then we have uh, from San Francisco Chronicle, while he was in prison, Moybidge describes his relationship and his motivations for the murder. We never had any trouble to speak of. We sometimes had little disputes about money matters, but they were not serious. I was always a man of very simple tastes and few wants, and I did not spend much money. What I had left over after paying my little expenses I gave to her, but she was always wanting more. I could never see that she had bought anything with it so to speak of or imagine what she did with it. We sometimes had little spats about money, but nothing serious. I loved the woman with all my heart and soul, and the revelation of her infidelity was a cruel, frustrating blow to me. Since the shooting, I've been told many things to which I was previously blind. Friends who I should have expected to inform me when they saw how I was being deceived have now told me I do not desire to see her again. They may ransack my record as much as they please, and I defy them to bring anything against me. I have no fear of the results. I feel that I was justified in what I did and that all right-minded people would justify my action. Bold? Yeah. I mean... It, right you know, in the paper, he's like, I did it and I think I'm right. <laughs> he's like, I'm a murderer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, one thing one thing he has going for him, though, is like Leland Stanford, you know, is is in his corner. And so this is, this is kind oh, of his... Oh, okay. Here come the lawyers. Yeah. Ace in the hole, if in doubt, have money on your side in court. Mm -hmm. And that's going to usually work out for you. He wants his photographer back. He's got to get those horses. He does. They haven't finished their project yet. Yeah, so so Stanford did hire a team of lawyers to defend Moybridge, including one C.H. King and W.W. Pentagast. And you can always know it's like a really good lawyer when they're like C.H. King. It's not like Charles King. It's no, it's like C.H. and W.W. And I feel like WW, like two W names, like, oh, yeah, yeah. A teacher at school, uh, my school at WWW, mm-hmm. three W names. I was like, that's just really? excessive. That is. <laughs> um, so they do the, uh, the lawyers outline in their opening remarks on February 3rd, 1875, the, the sort of the defense they're going to use. We claim a verdict both on the grounds of justifiable homicide and insanity. We shall prove that years ago, the prisoner was thrown from a stage receiving a concussion of the brain, which turned his hair from black to gray in three days. He has never been the same since. I feel this is a super old school defense. Like, what happened? His hair turned from black to gray. He must be insane. Well, yeah, see, they got like three things there. They got one, it's justifiable. Two, he's insane. And number three, he's he got hit in the head. So, you know, he's not right in the head. So they're, they're kind of doing a broad... Don't forget the hair thing as well. <laughs> a broad approach, which I think is kind of contrary to what usually lawyers do, right? Usually you want to pick your best argument and forget about anything else, right? Um, but they're just kind of throwing the whole wide, wide berth and see what happens. See what sticks. Throw the spaghetti at the wall approach. Yeah. So, but... They just need that reasonable doubt. Yeah. In the end, the jury was not convinced of any of this, but it uh, it didn't matter. Be, or I should say, we're not, we're not convinced in the brain damage insane part, but they... They also were kind of inclined towards the notion that he was justified in his action. 
even though the judge actually, I note, noted here, the judge actually explicitly told the jury that killing a man for having an affair with one's wife was not um, a justifiable means of murder. But the jury was like, yes, it is. <laughs> so oh. they went ahead and so so as, as noted, in the well, they, they, they let him off. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, as noted in the contemporary report. I mean, not amazing. The punishment does not fit the crime. Yeah, well, this goes back to the the first actual um, insanity defense in the in the U.S. Anyway, I don't know if it was the first ever. Um, was actually something similar where someone was having an affair, and it was actually the I believe it was the son of the of the um, author of the Star Spangled Banner. Um, I think he was the one that got killed. Yeah, dude, I'm not going to be able to help you right there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was the one that got killed. Either that or he was the one who killed someone. I think it was him that got killed. But either way, that was the first insanity defense. And it was the same sort of thing. And it was also in that case was also like the guy was totally not insane. He just did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, but the jury, again, in that case also was like, yeah. So they they let him off. But anyways, going back to Moybridge here, uh, as noted in a, a contemporary report in the San Francisco Chronicle on uh, what the jury thought. The jury disregarded entirely the theory of insanity and meeting the case on the bare issue left acquitted the defendant on the grounds that he was justified in killing Larkins for seducing his wife. This was directly contrary to the charge of the judge, but the jury did not mince the matter or attempt to excuse the verdict. They say that if their verdict was not in accord with the law of the books, it is with the law of human nature that, in short, under similar circumstances, they would have done as Mybridge did and they could not conscientiously punish him for doing that they would have done themselves. Got it. Yeah. Uh, also, this is like reading the Count of Monte Cristo. Which is great. Like, it's all the weird phrasings and uh, like roundabout language and the use of different words. But, well, it's funny. Uh, it's when, I, when I read a lot of books like that, uh, like if I'm like reading it for like months and not reading like more modern stuff, when, I, when I'm then writing the articles and scripts and stuff, people always comment. It's like, what do you do? Like the way I'm writing changes temporarily. And it's not conscious. It's not like I'm trying to, but it's just when you're reading that much, you know, it, it just well, I'll be like You pop down to the store and you're like, and I shall thus present to you <laughs> yeah. my money. Yeah. Like, All right. Exactly. Thanks. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> so yeah, so Moybridge's wife, naturally she divorces him through this she you know he he happened to kill her it's also Lover. interesting that it's always the dudes who like back in the day it's like oh no he seduced the wife and it's like wait the wife's the one that's married he's just a dude <laughs> like yeah 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 she actually unfortunately for her she dies nine months later of some illness because you know 19th century that's what you do either that or mybridge learned his lesson lesson and became a silent killer yeah yeah so uh Fl- florado sued by the mybridge estate <laughs> Well, they have that murder tree. Did we do that one on the murder tree that one time? Which is like the thing that no one, no one checks for uh, in, in like most, because it's such a rare, I can't remember if it's the fruit. There's something on it where the fruit and nut or something and you can extract. Ah, and the, Is that an Indian it, thing? It, yeah. And it's this nickname, the murder tree, because it's basically, it's not untraceable if they know what to look for. But if you don't, and there's no reason you would think to look for it in most, you know, most of the world then it ends up just being, oh, he had a heart attack or whatever, you know, like, that's like, you know, a lot you know about like this cardiac thing. arrest. <laughs> well, we did, we did do a script on it. And I, sure I, I that did. one was, that, that one was one, if I remember, if I remember right, I sent you an email, like, should we publish this on YouTube? What, I mean, this one's definitely going to get not only demonetized, but probably like a, some sort of a controversy. Like the murder tree though. <laughs> gonna be yeah, it didn't. And it was, I don't even think it was demonetized, but then you know what was demonetized? Uh, Fyodor, uh, uh, Dostoevsky, the the biography we did on him for no particular reason. 
Oh, the peanut butter trials was another one that killed me. That like really that one that's it's demonetized. Bizarre. The peanut. It's a court case. Like, yeah. uh, anyway. like, this video has been manually re- reviewed by a yeah. um, monkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mentally yeah, deficient yeah, exactly. Someone, like, who someone who's trying to meet a quota. Like, <laughs> yeah. They probably yeah. need to meet a quota. So they got like five videos up at once and they're just like, eh. you know. we did a, on my other channel, Biographics. We've like done a bunch of like Nazis. They were all demonetized. We did Adolf Hitler. And it's like, sure, we'll pay you for that one. <laughs> Yeah, the yeah, murder tree, I think, was was A-okay. Um, but either way. So Bizarre. sorry. Moira Drive, she divorce him, dies shortly after for Florado, the, the boy. So, you know, he's not even a year old at this point. Uh, and his mother's dead. His supposed father, at least Moybridge and the mother thought was the father, uh, is yeah. also dead. Uh Moybridge did. He he puts him in an orphanage, but he does support him, like he provides money. For him to uh-huh. you know be educated and all that sort of business and uh and it does uh, noted for whatever it's worth that the boy grew up to sort of resemble moybridge so people kind of thought maybe it was his son even though the mother and moybridge did not think so uh and then actually the 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 boy himself seems to have thought so because on his tombstone was written uh florado helios moybridge and then it was the son of photographer edward james moybridge so he seems to have think so or at least claimed moybridge as his father so whatever the case, going back to Moybridge. So he travels after the murder thing. He doesn't go initially back to work for Stanford right away, but in, ends up traveling, taking pictures around South America about a year. And then he's he returns and he's life. Yeah, <laughs> he's finally going to go back to answering the question uh, of, what, of how a horse runs, basically. Mm-hmm. So Stanford, again, he, he ends up throwing all the money at him. And the, the whole project ended up only costing about $50,000, which is about $1.14 million today which is a lot of money. But when you consider there was like a whole staff and they're developing a whole new way to, to take pictures faster, better shutters, that sort of business, uh, not that expensive really. So they, they end up have many failed experiments over the, over the, again, the two years before the murder and then after as well. Um, but finally they do start to get some successful test runs. And so they finally announce on June 19th, 1878, they uh, invite much of the press to come watch them officially capture the, mo- the first what ended up being the first motion in film uh, and so what was it was important to invite the press to this because up to this point Moybridge had been publishing some of the stuff he had been taking pictures and and which showed the horses you know in motion and everything but the problem was that no one believed him that it was possible and so they thought he was making up and there were forgeries and whatnot uh, and so they actually had in the newspaper there was like character caricatures like making fun of him, you know, like, you know, what this this forger that's saying he can take a picture with that sort of uh, resolution and everything. I feel that's really a testament to quite how shocking this technology was, where people literally do not believe that it can exist. Yeah, so he wanted, yeah, exactly. So he wanted the press to be there. He wanted them to see them take the pictures, see the horse running, so they see the jockey on those. So they, they witnessed it with their own eyes so they can match what's showing up in the pictures. And he wanted them to watch him you know, develop the pictures too, which they had to be developed quite quickly at the same time. So anyway, so, but they're there, they get to witness the whole thing. So no one can doubt that he did what he said he did. Um, and so in the end, they, so they have the, the setup here is basically there's a white shed and in the white shed is about a dozen cameras and each one has two lenses and with two separate exposures per camera. And the whole point here was just in case one of them didn't take, you know, turn out one of the pictures. So each mm-hmm. camera would just, you know, it was basically two cameras taking a picture at the same time, 12 of them in succession. So they're going to get 12 frames, basically. And then on the other side is a white background to just get better contrast and whatnot. So and then there's 12 
tripwires along the way, along this little track, which the horse is then going to impact and trip to actually take the picture at each successive camera. Um, so, and they're about, about 30 centimeters or so apart. Uh, so about 20, 21 inches or so apart. Um, and these, these tripwires just control the shutters. So okay. presser there, they're watching. They got uh, master trainer, Charles Marvin. He's, he's sitting on Stanford's, one of his racehorses. And so the gun goes off, it runs, and it takes just a half second for it to trip all 12 of the cameras. So that's, that's fast. That's like 24 frames a second. Yeah. It's almost it's modern movie frames. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is what they do. So yeah, so they, all the cameras take the pictures. They all turn out perfect. He goes, they, he has only at this point uh, 10 to 20 minutes to develop all 24 total plates. Uh, because if the if the chemicals dry, then it, it won't come out. So he has to do mm-hmm. it quite quickly. It is all set up. They watch him do this, so they can't, you know, say he was it was all a forgery or whatever. And so then, yes, they see him develop the pictures. He shows them to him. They're super clear. You can actually Google this and see the pictures of the horse in motion. Um, you can watch the the thing, uh, and you can even see they were so good that they noted that you can see the thread like tip of Mister Marvin's whip in each negative. So even just the the little whip, they could actually make that out. So the press then they make wood cuttings of the of the stuff. That's how they actually got it transferred to um, the, the papers. Uh, and so it's just everyone could see that, yes, the horse did fly through the air, but not how everyone thought with the splayed out legs. Everyone thought that the, the legs would be out in the air, uh, you know, so the horse is kind of floating through there with the legs out. But it turns out it's actually when the legs are in, tucked in, uh, that all the all the hose leave the ground. Which you can see, I'm looking at it right now. I've got it in front of me. We've really got to sort this out. So when we do... We, we live stream mm-hmm. this show for everyone listening on a podcast. We've got to do it so we can throw out these images. Because, you know, you said how they were making the cartoons, like the, the newspaper guys would caricature. And you can see when that horse kind of has its legs up in the air, it does look a bit funny, doesn't it? It does. And this, is, this gets into uh, some of the artists, they took the news well and were like, yeah. And so they, a lot of people, a lot of artists contacted Moybridge. They wanted more information. They wanted so they could depict in future their stuff right. But uh, some of them... We're not happy about this because it does make their their fancy paintings that they've spent their lives putting together all of a sudden just look like comic things, you know, like just silly. Uh, and so in actually um, August Rodin, who's known for best known for his sculpture, The Thinker, uh, he he went the other way. He was one of those that didn't didn't care for this. Uh, he noted it is the artist who is truthful and it is the photography which lies for in reality, time does not stop. Yeah, except it does in a photo. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of in a painting as well. But you didn't think very hard about this one, did you, Rodin? Yeah. So the stunt was successful. Moybridge now had a way, a new way. He could actually film for the first time in human history. You could actually film motion, things in natural motion, and then repeat it over to watch, even in slow motion if you wanted to. Um, and all this when you put all the frames together in, um, which he, he invented a little bit later that called the Zoopraxiscope. That's what he called the basically the world's first movie projector. And it, it was just basically this where it was this. You can, again, Google this and you can see just a device where he puts all his pictures there and then you shine the light through and then it rotates. Uh, and then it, you know, it projects up as, as you can see it as it's in motion. You know, film. You must have seen these. Like, I feel most technical museums of any variety have a replica of one of these machines. I feel mm-hmm. I've seen this must have and seen so, like six or seven different museums over the course of my childhood. Yeah. And so he you actually the first the, where you spin it round mm-hmm. and the, the... yeah yeah exactly yeah. his looks a little different his looks a little different like it's a I mean you'll see uh, people can just Google it now or I'll I'll put a picture up in the when I when I publish the podcast version but 
But yeah, so we actually the first world's first filming where they actually showed it using the zoo praxiscope was on the fall of 1879 to Stanford and some of his friends. Um, and so there was one reporter also noted there of the first movie screening. Nothing was wanting but the clatter of hoofs upon the turf and the occasional breath of steam to make the spectator believe he had before him the flesh and blood steeds. Well, in black and white. <laughs> well, and, but it's just like you said with the virtual reality where it's like it just blew their minds. It's like, this is yeah. amazing. It looks so real. You know, the first first ever film. No one had ever seen anything like that. I understand it. It's yeah. 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 So things were going well at first. Uh, I think it was for a couple years. It went pretty well. So, you know, everyone Stanford and Moybridge were sharing the credit. They seemed the best of friends. You know, everyone knew Stanford was like, yep, I funded it, provided the, you know, staff and helped focus him on the project. Moybridge mm-hmm. did all the inventing and capturing. Um, and this would all change, though, with the publishing of a book by one Dr. J.B.D. Stillman titled The Horse in Motion in 1882. And so in it, the uh, uh, aptly named actually Stillman. Uh, so he would have 100 drawings copied from Moybridge's photos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he copies these photos from Moybridge and he, he writes this book, Horse in Motion. But the whole time he acts like it's sort of like his work and Stanford's work, uh, even though Stanford was really just funding it. And at no point does he credit Moybridge for this, for his work here. And this, this was a problem, not just for Moybridge's ego, but it actually cost him like a really lucrative job that he really, really wanted. Because in the book, Moybridge has just said, is just kind of mentioned in passing as an employee of Stanford's, not his contribution wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't big there and also also in the book it explicitly notes to quote executed and published under the auspices of leland stanford so as if to say that stanford you sort of knew what was the contents and and approved like this is how it happened uh um, is and, uh, not and, gonna be happy no he's not happy because he's he's ends up he's touring around showing all these different films not just the horse in motion but other things he did and he gets the british royal society of arts sees this they offer him a hugely lucrative contract to come film other animals and people in motion. So for scientific study. Uh, and so he goes there, but then this book comes out. He's about to take this job, this really great job that he wants, uh, you know, British Royal Society. That's quite prestigious. And, uh, and then, Oh no, they're going to think he stole it all. They did. They think oh, he's, he's not, they, they think he's just making it up that his contribution was nothing. And so what, they're not going to hire him. And not only that, but then they accuse him of being a plagiarist because Moybridge was attempting to publish an academic paper on his work on the horse in motion. But the thing is, is it mirrored almost exactly Stillman's book, like what was said in Stillman's book, because Stillman had used Moybridge's notes and but they thought it was the other way around. But Moybridge did not credit Stillman because why would he? Uh, but the, uh, their opinion was he was plagiarizing Stillman. And uh, and so they basically gave him the boot and were like, no, you're you're a, you're a fraud, basically. This, um, this, so. funnily enough, this just happened to us this weekend. I got an email from someone saying like, oh, um, plagiarism. And in the email, it says, yeah. hi guys, uh, just thought you should know, maybe this could be a lesson to one of your writers, uh, that on this, I think it was one of the websites that republishes like Neatorama or something. Yeah. And it's like, uh, oh, yeah. you, your writer stole this bonus fact almost word for word or whatever from this Neatorama article. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, it says at the top and then twice at the bottom that this list is republished with the permission of today I found out. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's quite, that. But. Yeah, Nidorama. We're, I'm good friends with the, uh, the owner of Nidorama. So, yes, yeah. he can publish whatever he wants. 
but yeah, that actually that happens all the time. Like I get comments like you stole this from Gizmodo or you stole this from like, no, look who the people list as the author. Or sometimes they don't. Sometimes people like literally steal it from us. And then it's like, no, we look at the dates we published. It Hang first. on, but this this is a problem that I also run into because for example, it might be published on the Today I Found Our website, like back in 2015 or yeah. like ages ago. Then we do the video. Yeah a few years later and someone's like you stole this from Nitorama they published it in 2016 and I'm like yeah. no but it was originally published by us in 2014 but thanks for playing yeah yeah or uh, the other one that happens sometimes is just on topics where someone will so there'll be some uh, channel that'll publish something on some topic and if they did a good job they're gonna if they covered it thoroughly and we cover it thoroughly it should kind of match up you know uh, yes. so it's like <laughs> you can't copyright facts <laughs> Yeah, it's so it should inherently. And so that that doesn't happen as often, but every now and then it will happen where someone will publish something and then we'll publish it. But like literally sometimes like these scripts are from like I have I have like 800 pending scripts to go through right now from like years ago that have been submitted that I got to do my thing to. And so like it can be like a duration of years from the point when we get the topic and then write on the topic and then I edit the topic and then we make the video. And so it's just like, it, it's not our work cycle. It's not that rapid to be able to be like, oh, someone pu- published a video a week ago and we did something similar. It's no, at minimum, we're talking like a month, probably. People are like, you and, you and Vsauce did the same video on the same day. Coincidence? Yeah, entirely coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> How long, yeah, you totally think we just put is. this together in four hours after we published that video? <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, that, that happens sometimes as well, but any of it going back to uh Moybridge. so he's he's now his reputation is ruined like the british royal society i mean that so basically everyone in the uk thinks he's a fraud uh, a lot of people back in the us think he's a fraud because of this book uh, and so Moybridge actually he he notes how devastating this was lamenting the doors of the royal society were thus closed against me and my promising career in london was brought to a disastrous close yeah so he does he sues the publisher of the book and he sues stanford himself as well. And like he has a legi- legitimate lawsuit here. This is, you know, kind of ruining his reputation for basically and for Stanford, he wanted to he was saying, you know, he's intentionally downplaying my contribution to make it look like he so history will think he, you know, remember him as the is the guy who did it, which a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot of instances of this where the person who financed the invention, history remembers them, gives them the credit. And the person who actually did the work is often not the one that people remember. Um, that happens a lot. So Moybridge thought this was this was happening. Uh, he ended up losing the lawsuit, but in it, but in the interim, the University of Pennsylvania came along, and they did believe that he actually did it, uh, and they they gave him basically a similar contract to the to the what the British Royal Society was offering. They wanted birds in flight. They wanted uh, nude men and women to watch them do various things, like just just random things like carrying buckets, going up and down stairs, hitting baseballs. They just wanted to see this. This sort of thing to, to watch, to study the motion, you know, in slow motion. Nowadays, when they actually, film you know, nude men and women, they're up to different activities yeah. than hitting baseball. <laughs> yeah, you can go see a lot of these. If someone said that, I'd be like, is that some analogy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did have dancing and stuff. And at one point, Moybridge himself was naked swinging an axe to like chop a bit of wood uh, and that. So you can you go are. see if you want to go see Moybridge naked chopping some wood, <laughs> which does kind of sound. <laughs> definitely like, sounds like risque. an analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they got Make it. it Moybridge chops wood. He's so chopping this, that this wood. Was, Moybridge did. Now he's he's quite famous for this. People are quite fascinated by these things. Um, and and Moybridge, he was more in it for the art, but he was making money for the science of it. Was uh, and it would influence a lot of artists. Would definitely they wanted to see these things in motion because it's not 
again, it's like we've seen stuff in slow motion like that. But to really like if you're an artist, for instance, in Hollywood, which this is the, the animators in Hollywood really picked this up was to I mean, everyone like Moybridge's books were the gold standard that you'd have on your desk to just be able to look at motion. You know, the stills they could like flip through and look at the, the stills to see how to draw them. Um, and without this, you know, it, w- it would have been much harder. It was just magical hovering horses. You can watch some of these Moybridge actually, you know, the bullet time from like the Matrix. Like that was probably the most famous uh, yeah. where they, they go around. They got the cameras all around and at different levels and everything. And Moybridge was the first to do this. Um, have you done he did this? this exact. No, I did this at like an exhibition a few years ago with a group of yeah. friends and they had like a bullet time setup. Mm-hmm. That's amazing that mm-hmm. you stand in the middle of the stage and we all jump at the same time. And then there's this whoosh shot mm-hmm. as the as the stills whip rounds and then they make you like a two second video or whatever of bullet time. It was awesome. I'd recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, and Moybridge, though, was the first to do this. And you can see a lot of the stuff he films. He does this exact thing where he's got the cameras all set around. And uh, that was actually, I think, the the him naked chopping the wood <laughs> is one of those uh, bullet time ones. And so this this has been you know, popular in cinema since, but he was <laughs> the first. time wood shopping. Yeah. In the end, like pretty soon after this, a couple decades after this, the Lumiere brothers and Thomas Edison and whatnot would come along and advance the technology quite a bit. But uh, Edison actually consulted with Moybridge quite a bit when he was developing his own system, a uh, better system. And so this, this kind of evolved from now films weren't just short animated GIFs basically, but to lengthy productions. And Moybridge actually, he predicted this. He saw this. So we have a good quote about what cinema would become according to Moybridge. In the not-too-distant future, instruments will be constructed that will not only reproduce visible actions simultaneously with audible words, but an entire opera with the gestures, facial expressions, and songs of the performers, with all the accompanying music, will be recorded and reproduced by an apparatus combining the principles of the supractoscope and the phonograph for the instruction and entertainment of an audience long after the original participants have passed away. Wow. Spot on. Yeah, he was exactly right. And then, uh, but he, he actually, while he was quite famous in his day, he, he very quickly became forgotten as more advanced technologies uh, came along. And, and what's kind of funny, just a little footnote to his life here, to add insult to injury, after he died in 1904, his tombstone actually has his name misspelled, uh, inscribed Edward Maybridge instead of Moybridge. Moybridge, that's um, unfortunate. So yes. Also, the, the spelling of Edward. Yeah, his spelling of Edward, how'd they get that right? Uh, uh, it's it, For people, it's E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. But, you know. What Edward. I just feel like there's a whole lot of extra vowels in that. There hey, is. You know, yeah. yeah. And that, uh, that's, 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 that's that today. I like this. Other than the murder bit, mm-hmm. which was quite dark. This was nice. I don't know, I think it makes it more, it's like a little more interesting that way. It's not just about the first film, but also this side story it's like in yeah. in in uh, you know like every star trek episode you have your a plot and your b plot you know that always runs along in the episodes you gotta you gotta have both makes it more interesting I feel like i should mention how excited i am for star trek picard you you, you watch that trailer yeah right? i watch i usually don't watch uh like the trailers like that if it's something i know i'm gonna like i don't want to yeah. see anything normally but this time if i couldn't you- resist if you do your ridiculous waiting for the show to finish its entire run before you watch these episodes, I'll be very upset because I will need someone to discuss this with. Yeah, I think it, I think I might break my rule on this one. Good. Because, you know, I think, I, well, yeah, I probably will because it's, it's starting. Thank you shit. And it's got Picard. Thank you shit. All right. And it's got, I, apparently what, it's if got. If you don't, like, I'm going to absolutely brutally spoil it for you. 
Yeah. Well, and apparently it's got like, I always thought that like they should put together like the dream cast of the best characters from each of the Star Trek. So you have the doctor on Voyager, yeah. um, you know, you got like Geordi and of course Picard and you just kind of put them from all the different ones, a quark on Deep Space Nine, uh, put them all in one show. And it seems like they're kind of starting to do that. Like I, I, supposedly the doctor is going to make an appearance. Um, yeah. And, Seven know, and nine as well. Always solid. Yeah. Then no mention of Geordi, uh, LeVar Burton, but uh, yet. But they do have like Troy and you know whatnot. Troy was never my favorite character. Yeah, but at least you know she was decent. She was most of most really? of the next generation cast was decent. Barkley, That's they should true. have Barkley because I think Barkley oh, yeah, was one of the best characters appear. on the whole thing. He was like the everyman, like the the character everyone can relate to. It's like they have all these futuristic people, you know, who are all like yeah. all got it, That's everything. So they perfect. got it together, and then there's yeah. then there's Barkley, who's just like completely <laughs> flawed, but also kind of awesome. At the same time. Yeah. Old yeah. Barkley. Yeah. Uh, do we have anything we need to announce or cover? I suppose we will probably cross 2 million subscribers on our YouTube channel today, which is pretty rad. Thank you, everybody. Probably, like, as we're recording this, I think, most likely. I could check I was you right now if you're excited. I checked it when I had my yeah. coffee this morning, and we were about 60 subscribers off. Hey, uh, yes, we have. Yes, 2 million and 88. Oh, 99 now. I guess we're on a climb. Oh. Um, ooh, now a hundred. Oh. That's how it works. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we will be doing a and a live like this, right? Yeah. And we meant to do it like right when we go across, like well, it's just happened now, but I'm traveling. So that's probably not ideal. I guess next week then, because um, we also, yeah, when we I get, asked when I get a community home. poll, a, a big lot of questions. We did. And I, I hadn't had a good chance to go through them yet. So, so we'll pick some from there. We'll do it live. It'll be fun. So join us mm -hmm. for that. I say that we haven't set a date or anything. So, you know, constantly have your app out and be refreshing. <laughs> wait yeah, for us. Channel. It's just a good idea. Just continue watching videos while you wait. So there's that. Reviews. Thank you. For, do we have a contest winner? Did you pick a contest winner yet? I did on my home Ooh. computer. I was about to say, you're forgiving. Ah, oh, because you're traveling. I was going to say, you're forgiving. It's, in, you're it's on a I'm document. It's on a document, a spreadsheet in my home computer. And it's there. There's a winner. Three winners, actually. but um, Oh, because we do a couple of follow-ups. Yeah, but I don't remember what they are. We occasionally give away Amazon gift vouchers to people who review our podcast on whatever platform you like. I mean, as long as it's not some tiny one that we're never going to find, but we go through the major platforms. Uh, yeah, leave us a review. That would be fantastic. Oh, also, rate, review. I feel like there's other stuff I normally say, but I've forgotten it all. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant work, Simon. On that note... We'll be back next week with another brand new show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, and if you are listening to the podcast version, or for whatever reason you do feel like watching the live version, you could do that as well, but it's yeah. less good that way around. Uh, for now, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back next week or whenever we want to do another one. <laughs> Thanks for listening. His hair turned from black to gray. He must be insane! <laughs>